it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. With the big news last week, I really felt that I wanted a reset. I wanted to go back to the well to where my interest and enthusiasm for beer began 30-odd years ago with Matilda Bay Redback. So I reached out to Phil Sexton, who kindly agreed to chat. I wasn't after hot takes. I was interested in the considered thoughts on the industry from someone who has not only seen it all before, he's pretty much done it all before as well. And that's just what I got. It's a great chat. We discuss Phil's view on craft, independence, the inherent demand for businesses to grow, and the inevitability that they'll also sell. Also, his undisguised admiration for what the Stone and Wood founders have achieved. Along the way, we also hear how he nearly brought Starbucks to Australia, but decided to create Little Creatures instead. And as ever, there are many, many rabbit holes we fall down to as we do. It's a great chat, and I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Phil Sexton, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Mate, this has been a very, very long delayed. Uh, we, we've exchanged a few texts since we last spoke about the, some of the conversations that I've wanted to have with you. And uh, I, I, I delayed it um, for, for some time initially because I wanted to get down to uh, the Matilda Bay Brewery and have it with you over a beer, which seemed the most apt place to do it. But COVID's uh, put paid to that. But then recent news has, has have made it ever more germane. So unfortunately, we're not get, getting to uh, share a beer with this one. That's all right. I've done my fair share of beer sharing online through Zoom, and I find it <laughs> it it just doesn't seem to work very well. It's you know beers together face to face. I think it's the way it's the way it was always meant to be. But um, why don't we just have a chat and we'll have the beers some other time? And and take that as read. But uh, but you make a really interesting point, and it's probably a question that I couldn't ask too many people in the brewing industry, but you've had interests in beer and interest in wine. From a purely philosophical point of view, is there a difference between the two in terms of their ability to be, you know, social beverages? Um, I don't think there's a there's the difference that most people would, would li- either like to think or most people think. Um, you know, we just before you we started this chat, you and I were talking about... Um, you know the transition of a of a craft brewery from you know i guess the the kernel of an idea that then becomes real and gets interest and you know can start to make and and distribute beer um my experience with it has been that uh, it goes through stages and you know the stages become dominated by you know the 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 normal business um issues that most businesses have to confront and that is requirement for capital as you grow you need more capital and you know the more beer you make the more capital you need to fund it and to 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 put equipment in place to make it 
um, to set up distributions and the rest of it. But so capital becomes a, a, a really big issue. And, um, you know, I don't think in my experience, whether it's been in the US market with people I know there or in Australia, um, that it's any different. Um, you know, at Capital Europe, you've either incredibly wealthy and you can keep on drawing upon your reserves or you've got to go looking for capital. Um, and, you know, debt never really solves the problem for you. Yeah, well, we've jumped right into that. I was going to sneak up on and sort of ask how things were going at Matilda Bay, but we might have to back in that now. So obviously we're referencing the big news from last week with the Stone and Wood sale. You did say off mic that it didn't come as a huge surprise to you. It didn't. And that's not because I had any inside information or had even had um, discussions with the, with the guys and I, I know them all quite well. Um, I mean, most people listening would know Jamie and I worked together for a long time in uh, in Matilda Bay in the eighties, um, and and Brad and I go go well back back to the, when Brad was in the wine industry. I you know I think as as you know a craft brewing company sort of goes through the transition you know and we, we might even get into a discussion about what's a craft brewer compared to what's a commercial brewer I like to think they're the same but I was um, going to say does that matter anyway I, I'll have to send you one of my post craft world t-shirts because uh, I, I, I think that is well and truly in the uh, rearview mirror what is, is a post craft world t-shirt is it yeah we, we've got t-shirts with uh, post craft world on them um, because I, I, I don't know that craft is even a thing anymore, is it? it, it, it is, is that a discussion that we still need to have? Well, it's a discussion for, over a beer, I think. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think I've, I've been on the record many times when people or someone asks me what I think the best beer in the world is. And my answer is pretty quick um, and simple, Budweiser. Um, and, you know, from a technical and craft perspective um it's it's a beautifully precisely made beer and and therefore you know could we call it a craft beer well i think i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that here today because i'll get shot down but um you know i'm not sure that a small craft business or craft brewery business really owns the title craft when you compare it to much bigger breweries producing beautifully crafted beer as well but um Let's go back to the Stone and Wood transaction. You know, I'm sure that Stone and Wood were at a place where, um, you know, distribution was becoming more difficult. Um, the logistics behind distribution becomes more difficult. Keeping share of mind with retailers becomes more difficult because there's so many other new interesting products being thrust at them all the time. Um, and, and the final piece of the puzzle, I, you know, and again, I, I haven't spoken to the guys, but, um, you know, I, I have read that there was a $50 million brewery on the, on the cards coming along. And um, I know how hard it is to fund $50 million, um, no matter how big your brewery is. And um, so, you know, these issues of capital um, would have been very front of mind for them, I'm sure. And, you know, do we want to go into more debt? to keep growing? Do we want to bring in more partners to keep growing? Do we want to stop growing? But of course, stopping growing is never an answer um, in business. I know I know we like to think we can, but it's, it, the momentum behind you overtakes you if you stop. 
And uh, so, you know, I, I recognise the moment that they have probably found themselves in because I've been in that situation with Matilda Bay, with Little Creatures, uh, and certainly colleagues and friends of mine in the US, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, where their businesses found themselves in exactly the same position as well. So, no, it wasn't really a surprise. Um, I think the surprise was that they went so long for me. Um, you know, I think they a few years ago they were really doing so well that there was a lot of momentum there and I'm sure the momentum's still there now. But, you know, it would have been pretty easy and pretty um, um, tempting to um, to do it back then. So, you know, I, I take my hat off to them. I think they've done it very, very well. Um and, you know, they've got a good partner there mm. who, you know, I think they've done, you know, Lion's done great with um, Little Creatures. And um, I'm sure they've got their strategies worked out and we're going to see a lot more of Stone and Wood. Well, certainly the way that uh, the Little Creatures sale has progressed, um, you can believe that not a lot is going to change with the, the beer quality um, because whilst people want to say online that it's been dumbed down. It's it's as good a beer um, as ever. And it, as a beer that shaped my palate around that style, it's still the beer that I go to when I want a good quality of the uh, uh, American Pale Ale. Mm, well, it was one week to the day um, before I heard um, about this transaction. So it was not last Friday, the Friday before. And uh, I was in a little uh, lovely shop I'm going to give them a plug, actually. Um, it's called <laughs> it's called Barik, and it's a it's a wine and beer shop in um, the main street of Hillsville that I tend to drop by and buy a bottle of wine on my way home quite regularly from there. And I know the owner really well. And I was in there chatting with him and um, Steve Flamstead, who's the head winemaker, Giant Steps, um, had texted me saying, "Hey, uh, um, can we have a chat?" And he wanted to chat about something. So I texted back saying, oh, I'm just at Barik at the moment and I'll um, I'll give you a call when I get back in the car. So he texted straight back and he said, if you're in Barik, go over to the beer fridge and grab a couple of cans of Stonewood's Pacific Ale. It's a fairly recent, recent I was going to say bottling, a recent canning. But uh, and he was saying, I, I had some last night. It was amazing. So I, I bought a six-pack of it and took it home. And uh, sat at home just marvelling how how damn good that beer was, and uh, there's no dumb down there for not at all. No, beautiful. We talked briefly off air, and we, we might sort of talk a little bit about the history of Matilda Bay in in this chat as well. But you'd said that it was a challenge that you'd faced at Matilda Bay with um, you know investors or partners wanting to go separate ways. You know. To me, as somebody who's a relatively unsophisticated business mind <laughs> by comparison, it was always the most likely challenge that any group of investors, you know, founders fatigue, partners wanting to move on, would have to face. Do you think, given the inevitability of this situation then, that perhaps the rhetoric should have been a little bit different a- a- along the way? I don't know if I've been guilty of doing that. Um, I I've always avoided conversations about, um, you know, what are your plans for the future? Um, and and my my answer, and I was taught this answer by one of my first partners when we started Matilda Bay back in 1983, who was the only person who had any business experience at the time. And, you know, he used to remind us 
that uh, when people in business um, start saying the business is not for sale, that, that become a movement or an organisation, they're not a business. Um, and so you can flip that around a bit, and that is that, you know, any any serious business is always for sale. And so, you know, I guess making statements that people are going to hold you to um, where you are denying that um, are probably going to come back and bite you. But for me, those sort of statements are, are probably fairly accurate in that, you know, it there may be a potential sale in the future in the back of their minds, but um, at, at that time, it's not for sale. It's not happening. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it sounds like a, Sounds like a lawyer's answer, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> no, not not at all. It's it's a nuanced topic, so there's always yeah, going to be a nuance. Yeah, and and you know, I'll give you a, a good analogy, and that is my giant steps business. Um, it was really set in my head that it was it was I loved the business, it was going well, and why would I want to sell it? Because I didn't want to. But you know, as I got old and you know, I found it more and more demanding to, you know, at the same issues, capital, how do you fund the barrels? How do you fund increases in production in, in, in wine? Um, more challenging, uh, managing debt, more challenging. Um, and you change your mind. Um, and so I, I you know, I, I'll be charitable. And, uh, you know, I think um, Stone Wood guys, likely change their minds. But um, at the same time, you know, if, you know, when you've got multiple shareholders, you know, who have all got a considerable say as to what's going on with the business, um, in my experience, you never get everyone aligned on things like this. Some want to stay, um, some want to go. Mm. And usually if there's enough saying go, then, you know, you're going to go. What does this mean then for for the notion of independence because the IBA only changed its sort of vision from craft beer to independence you know should it just change its name to the small brewing association that's a bit like you know COVID zero is where we're going you know and uh and all of a sudden everyone's had to eat their words and go well that's that's a nonsense it's not going to happen um well you know the notion of independence and an independent organization um is you know I, I get it I and it's nice, but you know how how many people really are independent? How many sort of how many craft brewers around Australia that are that are producing any significant volume are truly independent? Um, you know, you're dependent upon retailers. You're particularly dependent upon the big retailers. You're dependent upon distributors. You're dependent upon whatever relationships you may have in the background, um, which could include co-packing um, or co-brewing. Um, and, you know, so the, the notion of, you know, p- absolutely pure independence is um, something that seems to me a bit like COVID zero. Um Nice to talk about, but um, pretty hard to deliver. Also, you know, independent one day, but circumstances, I mean, we're talking about circumstances change. So, you know, suddenly, you know, that 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 um, independent T-shirt you're wearing, um, you're going to have to take it off. Um, <laughs> you're a dead man walking as soon as you start well, growing. Right. And, and but look, you know, they're also, you know, we're talking about independence and, you know, I, I think 
for me, the most um, admirable job in, in brewing in Australia has, has to be the, the, the most independent brewer there is, and that's Coopers. And, you know, I've, I've known the Coopers ever since I started brewing back in the 70s. And, um, you know, they, they spoke um, independently, thought independently then. And, um, you know, I haven't been in contact with them for a long time, but everything I see in here, all the things they do with their beer, um, just sort of do show that independence can happen. And and actually, you know, back on this notion of, you know, does a, does a, what causes a brewery to sell or a craft brewery to sell, um, one thing I think that they have probably, I'm speaking about situations I don't really know, so, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. These are my opinions. Um, but, you know, the strength of family um, probably is a heck of a lot stronger, awful lot stronger than just shareholders who've come together to own a business. And, um, you know, they, they've proven that it can be done and uh, more power to them. We've been through the craft beer years. So craft mm-hmm. beer, as, as we touched on, probably not a thing anymore. Independence, not a, a binding thing. We, we, we do need a association to represent the interests the the lobbying and advocacy interests of small brewers and ironically before the craft beer association ever formed you know uh, that was jamie's uh view it certainly is, is expressed to me that we need a body that brings brewers together and is an advocacy body for brewers but not a marketing body they need to take care of their own marketing and then at some stage suddenly and um, under Jamie's guidance, became a marketing body for um, independence. What, what are your views on um, an industry association that represents the interests of small uh, brewers? How do they come together and achieve something that's meaningful for small brewers? I think in volume caps or production caps have, have been one of the criteria um, for whether someone can be a member of one of those associations. And I'm sure whether it's stone and wood or little creatures, um, they would have crashed through those volume caps and found themselves <laughs> being invited to leave, um, <laughs> which isn't very helpful. Um, I, you know, I think that's a, a really difficult question because, um, you know, I have worked in the, in the large-scale brewing industry. Um, you know, Swan Brewery, when I was there in the late 1970s, was brewing over 2 million hectolitres of beer a year. And... But the way we we brewers that were working in that business thought and spoke was was as if we were craft brewers. Um, and you can ask me again, what's a craft brewer? But uh, you know, our conversations, our interest was around um, all the things that I hear craft brewers talking about today. And so, I, you know, I, I, I guess I'm not in favour of exclusive organizations because you know we are working in the same craft we we make beer differently but you know who says one way of making beer is any better or worse than another way and Um, and i guess that gets to the nub of the question because as an industry association they're designed to advocate the interests um and and one of the challenges for example in a multidisciplinary you know wine spirits beer 
around the excise issue. You're never going to get those three well, interests to align in an advocacy yeah. uh, element. Yeah, well, that that comes back to your your comment about um, you know are they are these marketing organisations or are they um, or are they um, an organisation of of the actual practitioners of of, of brewing and you know, I mean, with Matilda Bay at the moment, um, you know, I I have access to the um, the CUB brewing technical people, and I think that's fantastic because you know the information resources that are there um, are, are very helpful. Um, I can find that information and those resources going elsewhere, um, but you know, it's all in one place. Um, there's a huge amount of experience there. Um, you know, why as craft brewers, you know, using that term, why wouldn't we want to be in the same association as those people mm. um, where, you know, they can enjoy listening to our stories of small-scale brewing and all the sort of things that go on there and at the same time we can listen to their stories and tap on their experience as to how they deal with these things and how they deal with those things. Um and you know the the I was due to speak at the um, conference that was going to be held in Perth last year, um, and I think I think we missed out by a week or so as all the lockdowns. That was started. the IBD but, conference for, for yeah yeah. But you know, for me, that's a very um, you know very um, valuable, important organisation because it it doesn't put any restrictions on um, or um, any. You know, no one's looked at it in a different light. You know, with, whether you're making a tiny little bit of beer in a, in a small um, industrial place out the back of Melbourne, or whether you're with CUB or Lion, um, everyone's the same in that environment. And you know, I found that very, um, a very supportive, friendly place to be. I don't really understand why some brewers would want to have a different organisation. Just jumping back to the conversation you had with a colleague or you're one of your first uh, business mentors that it's if you're not for sale you're a movement not a business in, in some ways that's where this idea of the conscious business that stonewood has been selling there, there, there has been that sort of cultish quality you know it, it, it has presented itself a bit as a movement you know we're about all of these things that um you know are, are beyond the business that we're in so there was that little bit of element of uh yeah no that's true that's true and uh some of those that was really impressive um um a lot of that um and but that's they're still doing it but i guess at some stage if you put it in your terms um they realized that in fact they were a business and not a movement uh, they just didn't tell us about it <laughs> you know i i just have i i have the highest admiration for for the guys there mm. i really do not only have they made fantastic beers, but they've done beautiful work with brands and also establishing, you know, it's the movement or if you like the culture around what they're doing, mm. I think has been very, very um, well done and has helped achieve their business ends really mm. at the end of it all. Um, but back on the, 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 um, the for sale thing, you know, if, Really, if if you run a business and you know you're not for sale, um, I think it's worth having a, a bit more of a think about why you're running a business. And 
see, I think that leads me into something that I think is really important, whether you're in craft brewing or whether you're in wine or I don't know if you know, but I, I was involved with coffee for quite a while back in the 80s as well. And for me, coffee's not that dissimilar to, to wine or beer and in, in, in that it's manufactured, but then you take it to market yourself and you're also very closely linked in the retailing end of it. So it's that vertical integration um, that I've always enjoyed. But um, the, for me, if, if you can't make your business financially sustainable, everyone talks about environmental sustainability and all those other things, uh, and those are terribly important, but the most important thing for me in a business um, is that it's financially sustainable. It's not just drawing money, cash, capital in from wealthy people who aren't seeking or don't need it to be working. So, you know, it's, I think it's a really important measure um, with, with any business, and that is, is it making enough money to sustain itself and grow? And if it isn't doing that, then you've got to do something about it. And, and one thing may be to sell. And that may determine the, the point that you decide you're going to sell. Um, you know, you recognise that. You you don't want to raise more debt or bring in more capital to get to the next level, to get back into financial. So you get into this sort of almost stepwise approach to business where you, you go from one step to the next. And I think, I guess, as you arrive on those steps are when you really do consider your options and, you know, are we going to go, this has been great. Um, but, you know, somebody else needs to take this to the next level now. I actually saw some, I think it was in the Fin Review, they were just quoting some numbers on revenues at Stone and Wood, um, and I'm not sure if they captured all their revenues there, probably only one, only some of them. But anyway, you know, their revenues looked great. Um, and so, you know, I guess they may have been at one of those stages where they're going, well, what are we going to do now? We, you know, are we, if we're going to build a $50 million brewery, which is what was quoted, mm. um, you'd be thinking very hard about that in the boardroom because, you know, the next step, in other words, to get to the stage where that $50 million brewery was was working and, you're, you know, you're looking for your next step from there, could be 15 years' time or 10 years' time. And so the conversation amongst the partners in the boardroom would probably turn to, do we want do we really want to do this? Do we, you know, we've got a 10 or 15 year um, plan that we've got to now execute before we can address what we're going to do with this company again. Mm. I'm reflecting on the, the point you made that you have to grow, um, you know, the, yeah. this idea, yeah. you know, because I've, I've looked at a lot of the small breweries um, that, that are springing up around the country and I've come to equate a lot of them as being like buying a news agency, except a much more expensive news agency where you're buying yourself a job, but you, know, that you might keep yourself, you know, if you stay at a level, you might keep yourself employed. And then when you tire, hopefully sell it, yeah. you know, and, and, and hopefully sell the business to someone else who wants to just sort of sit and sell papers and uh, lotto tickets um, during the day. Cause but at, at a scale that, any time that you're not in the business, you're paying someone else to be there, which yeah. puts stress on the business. Is there a medium between those two? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I've told you this story, um, and that is, um, you know, when I came back from the, from the US in 95, 96, um, 
guys that we I started little creatures with. We'd, we'd been in conversations for quite a while before I came back, and um, and I felt like I'd had enough. Um, I'd been working with sort of fairly big company or big brewing operation over in Portland, and you know I'm still still getting over the little creatures experience. So you know I was adamant with them that if they if I was going to be involved, we were going to do we weren't going to grow. We were just going to build, we we're going to build a small craft brewery um, that sold all its beer over its bar. I remember no bottling, no no bottling um, at all. And you know we'd modelled that you know if if we could be selling fifty or sixty kegs a week across our bars with a, a, a brewing facility so small that that's all it needed to do, that we'd actually have a, a nice circular business that would just you know pay us pay us good wages make us a bit of profit and we could just keep going doing that well you know they <laughs> i lost that argument <laughs> and uh, so i ended up going along with them with a much bigger thing but I've, I've often reminded them that you know we could have done it that way and we'd probably still be running it having a great time but you know i think the other side of business is that this business and you know, brewing is business. Um, but business is that you've always got to keep improving yourself. You've always got to be competing with everybody else. It's competition. And you know, to compete, how do you measure your success? Well, you measure your success by growth. Um, and so it you know, for me it always becomes a, a, a growth model. And when you start to look at your business plan, um, next year's business plan isn't, uh, you know, has to be more than this year's business plan because it's the only way you're going to catch up, um, catch up financially, if you like, because, you know, you're invest whether you're investing in raw materials, whether you're investing in, in a better piece of plant equipment that can do the job better, make the beer better, um, better people, you're always having to find that money just after you've made those decisions. And so it just becomes this kind of growing wheel um, that in my experience then becomes steps as well. It doesn't just keep going. You, you do get to these points where you've got to reconsider where you're going. Are we going to double the size of this brewery or, you know, are we going to go into these markets and therefore we're going to have to fund them? So my experience is that, you know, that everybody in business is seeking growth. I think when you were telling the story about 96, you were just getting over, I think you said Little Creatures, but I take it you meant Matilda Bay? I said, that was a bit Freudian, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't even got used to Little Creatures. No, I was getting no. over Matilda Bay and just, yep. you know, how that, that, that all eventuated. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and incidentally, uh, I mean, given that it was, wow, what, 25, 26 years ago, your time in Portland – Having been there just before COVID hit, um, your name still has incredible currency. There's a lot of reflected glory in knowing Phil Sexton still. Um, really? Some of the yeah, no, some of the people that we met um, talked about your time there. You're uh, you, you, you're well remembered there. Ah, uh, well, I, it's, I guess that's nice. Um, I I do. I remember when I got there, um, there was um, there was a lot of quizzical looks about some Australian coming over to show them how to maybe make different styles. And, you know, at that stage, um, no one was really bottle conditioning beer. Um, 
it just wasn't something, in fact, you know, not a lot of people bottle conditioning beer in Australia either. Um, and for me, that, that's one of the great, great parts of brewing is, is, is what you can do um, when you keep it living in the pack. But uh, no one was doing it. So, you know, one of the first things we started doing at Bridgeport was, well, let's actually, let's not just make these English style ales. I'm making English style ales at the time. Um, let's not just keep doing that. Let's let's look at um, actually not filtering them or centrifuging them. Or I can't remember. They were filtering, I think. Um, it's actually, you know, get the yeast loads right, get some nutrient or get some substrate in there um, and, and finish them off in the bottle. So I that aroused quite a bit of interest um, around there and it was this kind of Australian guy who, uh, who wasn't part of the scene there. So... I guess it's kind of nice to hear that they haven't forgotten. Um, <laughs> and the other thing, the other thing that I was, I, everyone was doing the same thing at the time. I, I recall that so well, and I couldn't understand why they were just making the same styles of beer as each other. And, you know, I challenged the, the, the people at Bridgeport to, well, let's, let's do something different. So, you know, what's the most exciting beer in the, in the, on the West Coast market at the time, and it was easy. It was Sierra Nevada's Pale, which is a beer I've always loved, and I've still got some in my fridge at home um, now. Um, well, you know, let's not copy them. <laughs> that would be that would be wrong and and wouldn't feel right. Um, and also, you know, at some stage I'd have to con- I'd be confronted by Ken about that. Um, no, let's um, let's let's take it to the next level. And you know, what is the next level? Well, you know. For a pale ale, well, you know, it's the it's the very strong pale ale with much higher bitterness, higher higher alcohols, um, and also let's also look at English style hops in this as opposed to what everyone else was doing in the Pacific Northwest at that time, which was logical and using Pacific Northwest hops, I know, but let's let's look at using some English style hops in this. So, you know, we we came out with an IPA that was bottle fermented that went on and um, took us to nearly a million cases um, over the few years I was there. Um, so, yeah, it's good. Um, I have been back to Portland a few times on, on wine business, actually. You know, I, I got to know got to know the Ponzi's quite well. Um, they were the original owners of, um, what is, of Bridgeport. Um, and so I've been back there on wine business a few times, but haven't really had a lot to do with the craft beer Um market or the crappier people in the last few years yeah no, it, was, it was amazing that you, you, your name still had a, a currency with them but and this has nothing to do with nothing but you mentioned coffee and I, I was taken by the story you told when you spoke at the craft beer industry association conference a, a couple of years about how you almost you, you and your partners almost brought uh, starbucks to australia but Nah. That led to uh, little creatures. So, just while I've got the tape running, I'd love to capture that story now. Yeah, back in the eighties, um, I actually I started the coffee business in the sort of the in the late eighties um, because at the time within Matilda Bay, we were one of the things we were doing with our pubs around the country was we were putting um, espresso coffee machines on the bar, and you know just continually trying to make the bars less sort of male, uh, traditional Australian pub focused. But, you know, we always, 
sort of considered success for the pub was when you had more women coming to the pub than men. And, you know, we knew we knew that there was a pretty straight formula for that. And the first thing to do was to just get the toilets right um, and get the music right. And But um, coffee, coffee had been part of this progression. And so all the pubs that we had around the country at the time um, had coffee machines on the bar. The staff were all taught to be baristas as well as be able to pull beer. And um, we were buying coffee from a, a small roaster in Perth who... Um, we'd become his major, major business. Uh, anyway, towards the end of the 80s, um, when CUB bought the company, one of the edicts that came from CUB at the time was, you know, we're in the beer business, not the coffee business. And uh, how, how things have changed now, but, um, you know, basically we want the coffee taken out of the bars. So with that, I, um, I spoke to Phil, the, the guy that owned the coffee roasting company, and said, look, this is happening. And he said, well, that's going to send me broke. And uh, so I actually partnered up with him and said, look, why don't we actually start, I'll, I'll help fund this with you, I'll work with you. Um, and one of the other key employees in, in Matilda Bay who after the takeover um, had decided that they were going to leave, um, she came and joined us as well. And so we started this small company called Dome, D-O-M-E, um, where we were roasting and then we started setting up cafe-style cafe um, retail businesses and selling our coffee through there. And so Dome grew quite quickly and, and got a lot of attention, particularly on the West Coast. Um, and it was... So I'll park that because I'm now going to go forward to 1995, 96, and I'm in Portland. And um, I got a phone call out of the blue from one of the Starbucks founders um, who sort of introduced himself and said, look, I, um, I, I was talking about you the other day um, and about your dome business in, um, in Western Australia. We actually came and had a look at it because we heard what you were doing. And uh, we were, you know, we loved it. We loved how you've done it. Um, so I, I was talking about you the other day and someone said, oh, I think he's running a brewery down in Portland. So hence the phone call. And so I got to, I got to know him reasonably well. And when, um, you know, as I was getting to the, to the end of my stint in Portland with the brewery, I was preparing to head back to Australia. He asked me, you know, what are you going to do when you get back? And I said, oh, I haven't really worked it out yet. I... Um, uh, you know, I'd sold my wine business while I was away. That was the devil's lair business. And uh, so I hadn't quite worked out what I was going to do. And uh, he asked me if I um, might be interested in having a look at the Starbucks business or the Starbucks franchise for Australia. And with that, I, I was interested, obviously. Um, and uh, so I contacted um, Nick and Howard um, and Adrian, who... We had been talking to me about getting a craft brewery going in, in, in Fremantle. And I said, hey, um, are you interested in looking at this instead? And um, so they were. And uh, they actually came across um, to Portland uh, and spent some time there with me. And then we went up to Seattle and um, spent some time with the Starbucks people working on the model, working on just how the, the whole arrangement would work. Um, and we were right at the 
at the point of signing the, the deal off. And um, I recall it really well. We we were going, to, I think we we're going to sign it the next day and we'd gone out to dinner in Seattle. And, um, you know, towards the end of the dinner when everyone's um, sort of congratulating each other and sort of excited about the transaction, Nick Trimboli um, started getting quite anxious and we could see that <laughs> he wanted to talk to us. So we excused ourselves and went off to a, um, some late night bar further downtown to have a, to see what Nick wanted to talk to us about. And he, he just looked at us all and he said, I don't want to do this. Um, I, I, it feels wrong. And uh, so, you know, between, I, I think this was probably about 10 o'clock at night, about 4 a.m. the next morning, we uh, decided that we, if one was out, we're all out. So we were going to actually um, tell, tell them that we couldn't proceed with this Starbucks transaction um, and that um, we were now united that we were going to do a craft brewery in um, <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, I reflect on that really well, and that is, you know, Nick, Nick's always had terrific judgment and sense. And, again, you know, Nick and I had worked at Matilda Bay together and um, he was an instrumental part of getting Matilda Bay to where it got to. But, uh, you know, if we'd actually gone down that road, um, I think we probably would be still licking our wounds um, because, you know, when Starbucks did come to Australia under different arrangements, you know, I feel it came, it came too late. And the other thing it didn't really reflect was, you know, just how sophisticated the Australian coffee industry was or is. Um, so, you know, I think we would have had the same fate um, if we'd done the, the Starbucks um, entry into Australia. Things had just gone too far. Things were being done too well here for it to actually lead the way. It was attempting to, attempting to follow. And mm-hmm. Of course, that's a tough call, that one. Talk to me about following, and which brings us back to craft beer. I was interested that your take on Bridgeport was to do something different. Um, when you look at the Australian beer industry at the moment, for the 500-odd craft breweries there are, there seems to be you know, almost mm. a sameness about the 500 breweries that the rebellion was against 20 years ago, against the sameness of, of lagers is. Yeah. Yeah. That's that I, I see that. I, you know, I, I think when we spoke as, as this, this um, Matilda Bay um, project was, mm. was kicking off. Um, one of the things I felt I saw in craft in Australia at that time was a, was a sameness in the, you know, the same styles of beer, everyone had taken what little creatures did with the sort of the Pacific Northwest style pale ales and, and just taken them as far as they could possibly take them. Um, and there was also, you know, for me, and it still is the case and much as I love it. And that is, you know, just new crazy beers with new crazy labels all the time. There's a sameness in that too. Mm. Um, like you just, let's make it more crazy rather than, well, no, stop, <laughs> take a breath. Um, uh, or as my mum used to say, take a Bex. Um, you know, why not stand back a bit and go, wow, there's just so many things we can do with beer and there's so many things we can do with um, cereal grain and hops that, you know, why don't we actually start exploring a bit? And that, I, I, I think it's fascinating that we're starting to see some lagers coming out in what has been traditionally called the craft market 
um, some Pilsner style beers. And that's exciting. Um, it's also technically quite demanding, um, particularly, you know, really good Pilsner style beers. It takes a fair bit of work there. Um, but there's that, if you like, it's moving forward a bit. You know, we used to make quite a lot of Pilsner at Matilda Bay way back. We could never actually get it to stick. Um, and it was almost like, well, no, that's what the big brewers do. And um, so we always found that it was challenging. So, you know, if, if the lagers and the Pilsner style beers we're starting to see now get some cut through, and I hope they do, I've seen some lovely ones. Um, that's, a, if you like, a, a slightly new direction for craft. And, um, you know, at Matilda Bay, we've been, you know, I said we were going to look at some new styles and, um, and we are. Um, not really talk about them yet because we haven't taken them that far. Um, but we've certainly got some interesting interesting things going on. Um, our main job initially has just been to just work around the, the, um, the formulation and just bringing, um, you know, Redback, Dog Boulder and, and Alpha back to where we think they should be and, and to also... Um, if you like, get get some some discipline into the way it's branded and labelled, because it you know it had been sort of nibbled at for a long time, um, without anyone taking any real sort of ownership over it and pulling it all together. So we've been working on that, and of course lockdowns made it really difficult to do much. Um, but we've certainly not stopped brewing the whole time. In fact, James, our marketing guy, is trying to develop this marketing campaign around how much, how much beer we're throwing out. So whatever we're trying to sell you now is going to be really good, isn't it? Uh, which I think is kind of cool. That's a bit of fun. But we have had to throw a lot of beer out because we had nowhere to sell it. The, um, the, the closest my thinking has ever come to being in the industry from a production sense was after years and years and years of frustration of watching CUB just never get Matilda Bay right. And as, as I think I've told you, Redback was the beer that, is responsible for all of this. Now it was a beer that made me realise that beer could be different. I, I had a very informal conversation saying, look, if you're not going to use that brand, would you mind if I took it out for a spin? Um, and I had the marketing campaign built around, I liked it so much I bought the company. Um, so so why didn't you apply for our marketing job? <laughs> we, we were trying really hard to find someone. Speaking of businesses being for sale, if anyone wants to buy our media, I'm, I'm happy to uh, take on, on a job uh, work, working for a brewery like Matilda Bay. So um, hold that thought. But just back on that CUB um, mention there, um, you know, I, I think when CUB bought us, they bought us for a very different reason than to acquire a craft brand. Um, they bought us to acquire a manufacturing facility. Um, which was the brewery we just built on the west coast in North Fremantle. There, that was was a beautiful brewery, um, and you know it had a th- three hundred thousand hectolitre capacity, um, and we were nowhere near that volume, um, but we were going to grow to it. We were hoping to grow to it, um, and but there was some imperatives at the time where that manufacturing facility solved quite a few issues around the, the production of CUB beers. Um, they also bought a pub group and, you know, that pub group's still sort of intact within an AL, ALH and, you know, some the Perth pubs are still doing very well. Um, they, they bought, they bought um, a beer distribution business or a beer, a, a beer importing and distribution business that includes Stella Artois. 
in the mix, they bought the craft brands of Matilda Bay, which um, I don't think they were ready to address or felt that they needed to address at the time. So, you know, they just, they ended up in the mix, um, you know, on the fringe of CUB with, you know, on various occasions, different marketing people came through and went, oh, wow, what can we do with this? And I don't think it was until Little Creatures was they was watched um, that, that it created some more interest within CUB as to what, you know, we've actually got this original brand for Australia or one of the, one of the original craft brands for the world. And um, why don't we, why don't we have a closer look at this? And, you know, and that's, you know, that history with Brad and Jamie um, working on that within CUB, but it, it, you know, it it never really uh, got, got the attention um, until, you know, I started conversations with, with them maybe three years ago now when, you know, craft had become much more important to CUB. It was clear that it wasn't going to go away. It was clear also that it was taking significant dollar share from the big brewers. And, uh, you know, it, it, so it wasn't something you could just squash. Um, you, actually, you actually needed to be involved in it so that you didn't get an erosion of dollar share um, for your main brands. And, um, you know, I... I know CUB pretty well now. I work work with them very closely, and um, it's it's quite exciting. It's um, you know they they clearly um, see you know these craft portfolio of brands and the breweries that are there as very very important. And you know, and part of the importance that that is that's being reflected on them is you know in nearly every case the founders are still involved um, and work together. And you know, I, I sit once a month with all the founders where we, we talk about how it's going and we talk about how, you know, how we're working with CB. Um, and it's pretty exciting, you know, so it's an awfully long way away that where, where I sit now working with CB to what it was like in 1990 when, you know, to even talk to them about the craft brands was, was a difficult conversation. Which brings us back to where I was going to gently start. Uh, the, the conversation is COVID aside, um, obviously that's put a certain amount of uncertainty um, over over the plans. Is the eventual plan to, to, to grow Matilda Bay so we will start seeing it on tap in, in, in Brisbane or in, in, in packaged um, around the country or is it going to be a, a, a fairly localised brand for the time being? Well, our initial plan was to um, become the local brewer, if you like, um, in the Yarra Valley. Um, it's where I live. Um, it's where the brewery is. Um, it's kind of a food bowl for Melbourne, if you like. And, you know, that was really put paid by COVID coming in because, you know, and, and the main problem was that people couldn't come to the valley anymore um, with all the lockdowns. So, you know, we had to move our, our planning a little bit, but... Um, it's still, you know, once the lockdowns finish, and you know, I'm sure they will, we're going to keep on working to establish ourselves as a local brewer. Uh, but having said that, we're also starting to move pack beer um, and draft where we can um, into Melbourne, Melbourne businesses, and um, and particularly uh, to WA. Um, you know, there's been since we've started, there's been a lot of inquiry uh, through to us about, particularly with Redback. Um, and 
you know, I think we're probably in about 10 pubs over on the West Coast now with draft and, and we're increasing that and we're starting to send packed, we're preparing to send packed red back across there. So, yeah, I guess our just apart from the Melbourne area, um, our first priority and most important priority is, is WA because even though we're brewing in, in Victoria, we're still we're still originally a WA brand, and uh, we get we're getting sort of terrific recall uh, from people we talk to about it. Having raised Redback, I was interested when you brought it, and we, we actually queried it a little bit um, to to find out. Whereas it was very much a, a, a Bavarian style wheat beer when it first came out, you've you've gone a little bit more of a Belgian twang um, to it this time, or a Belgian twist. Talk, talk to me. It would have been so easy to just bring out Redback and say this is the original Redback and do all of the marketing around the originality of it. I was intrigued by the thinking around making those little changes to the beer. Yeah, my experience with Redback was that from when we first introduced it, and, yeah, it was an absolute Bavarian Hefeweizen style using a Bavarian Hefeweizen yeast. Uh, and... Um, so, you know, I think we nailed it pretty well. And I'd spent quite a bit of time in a couple of um, uh, Weizen breweries in in, um, in Bavaria getting to know just how that was being done. So I think we, we nailed it pretty well. But my experience and, you know, there's no, I don't have any scientific data on this, but it's my experience is that over time after we'd introduced it and everyone was as impressed by it as I was. Because everyone's going, yeah, but, you know, when you go to have that second one or that third one, it feels like you've had a big meal. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, increasingly that very sort of powerful, clovesy, um, banana-y sort of character that is very typical of those styles of beer started to offend offend my palate slightly. And But in talking to other people, I, I heard the same thing. It was kind of, I love it, but it's kind of like you don't feel like having it every day. Um, so we started, we started morphing, if you like, red back, way back in sort of 87, 88, where we went to about 50% with the, the lager strain yeast that we were using at the time for making our Pilsner beers, um, 50% Hefeweizen yeast, 50% lager strain, and, and making, bringing it back together, just toning it down a bit. And so, you know, progressively it was being toned down. Um, and so roll forward to, to two years ago, three years ago, my intrigue was to actually not use the Hefeweizen style yeast, but to use a Bavarian um, white beer or, or, or wit beer style yeast, which it's quite similar to the Hefeweizen yeast, but it, 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 has, it has more floral um, and definitely less cloves, less, um, less banana, you know, one stage we we're actually going to call Redback Banana Beer. I don't know if you know that. No, we did a lot of work on it. And and I think it probably would have worked really well because it was so banana-y that uh, I just kept saying to everyone, look, just stop, you know, let's, let's put something else in the Redback clothes and just call it Banana Beer. So, you know, I, I think I'm qualified to, to judge here um, because I worked with it from day one and lived with it. And, and also, did you know that Redback, won a gold medal at the um, Australian International Beer Awards this year. It, it slipped my attention if it did. So uh, congratulations. It did. it did. Yeah, well, yeah, but you see, this was the, the, the last of the Redback being made um, in the CUB system. Right. And 
So here I am saying, well, we're going to now, as Bay <laughs> takes it back into its brewery in Hillsville, and we're going to start moving it around. And, you know, I want to put my experience to how we can take this to another level. Um, it was like, oh, no, it's going to go well. That's so great. Well, you know, so, yeah, I, I guess I'm telling you all this because it's it's a – it's a slight challenge that I'm tackling here um, in starting to move red back a little bit more towards how I see it can be uh, for the future and for the long haul. Um, and, you know, if you saw it, if you saw the red back we're now making and, um, and we're serving it in draft, um, I think it looks great. It's, um, you know, it's still sitting at 4.7% alcohol, um, but it's, you know, it's just it's just moves slightly more towards that sort of vit style. Well, if any of those kegs happen to find their way north to Brisbane, uh, get your marketing guide. Let me know because I'll certainly go seek it out to, uh, to to see what it is. As I said, it's a it's a beer that's very very close to my heart and very yeah. important in my life. So, well, Phil Sexton, look, I, I, I literally. Uh, could go through a few more jugs uh, on this chat, but we'll, we'll save it for another time. So thank you very much for, for joining us for this conversation about beer and uh, can't wait till we can get down, we can travel again and get down to uh, Hillsville. Okay, Matt. It's great to chat. And that was Phil Sexton. You heard his thoughts on the definition of craft and he's now the proud owner of a post-craft world T-shirt. At his request, I might add, I have to admit, even if it just ends up polishing his car, I won't be too disappointed. If you want one as well, and I would be very disappointed if you wash your cars with with it, and I would be very disappointed if you wash your car with it, there's a link in the show notes to where you can order one. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryo Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryo Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. We thank Cryo Malt for sponsoring this episode of Beer is a Conversation. If you're a listener, don't forget you can join the conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, the Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join our Facebook group, just search, obviously, in Facebook, Radio Brews News, and use the password, Soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out. You can sponsor the show. Even $5 a month helps us keep this hamster on the wheel. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service and help other people find us. Or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. Anyone who does gets a Radio Brews News bar blade, which I know is increasingly less useful for actually opening beer, but they make a great paperweight. 